This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. The backbone of digital marketing is data, and how marketers use that data is what separates those who have success versus those who struggle. Richard Jones is the CMO of Cheetah Digital, and on this episode of Marketing Trends, Richard discusses why data is the fuel that keeps pushing the needle forward. Plus, he touches on the importance of digital marketing and how brands can build meaningful relationships with their customers. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And today we are joined by special guest, Richard, how are you? Very good, Ian. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, great to have you. Um, Excited to chat with you today about marketing technology stacks out here. Uh, You know, MarTech, always a hugely important focus for our listeners. We're going to talk that uh, and get into your background. So let's get started. How did you get started in marketing in the first place? Yeah, um, good question, because um, <laughs> I, I started, uh, you know, like everybody, you're 21 years old, 22 years old, coming out of uh, education and thinking, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And um, I thought at the time, as a 21, 22-year-old, that, um, you know, the great minds were going to be in marketing. So I actually took an internship at a very large marketing agency, global uh, marketing agency called Maritz, and um, got myself involved in uh, in marketing that way in, in an internship program. But uh, I didn't actually stay in marketing for very long. I did about, I think about 18 months at Maritz. And it, it just so happened that I'd been put on the IBM account um, for this agency. And one of the things that I was doing was running incentive programs for uh, IBM salespeople. And I was thinking, these guys seem to be earning a fortune and they're getting all these trips. It seems so glamorous. So I very quickly jumped out into sales and it was, uh, it was some time again before I got back into marketing. And so flash forward to today, what does it mean to be CMO of Cheetah Digital? Yeah, so I actually came to Cheetah Digital by way uh, of an acquisition. So I founded a company called uh, Engage Sciences, which uh, later... Uh, became uh, way in as its branding. That was about 10 years building up uh, Engage Sciences slash uh, way in. Uh, and actually Cheetah acquired the company just over a year ago uh, now. And then uh, a couple of months after that acquisition, I ended up being given the role as, as CMO. And so it's, you know, it's, been a, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, I, I, some extent, I wonder whether I am actually a marketer or whether I'm more of a multidisciplinarian uh, uh, coming from the kind of founder startup community, but it was—it's uh, been an interesting journey because the, the, the ten years of doing the startup prior to the acquisition of Cheetah Digital kind of had me being in a very rare pool of um, of those people who were sort of betting against sales uh, against um, fa- uh, Facebook in the uh, uh, environment that we work in today. Uh, we had built a platform that made it easier for marketers to create a whole manner of different interactive experiences, everything from surveys to quizzes to instant wins to all sorts of different engaging experiences that are designed to get data and opt-ins from consumers to build marketing databases. But, you know, in many ways, we were going against the stream of the Facebook world because Facebook was busily telling everybody at exactly the same time, hey, you don't need to know who your customers are. You know, we, we know who the, your consumers are. Just give us your money and we can ha- hi- and allow you to hyper-personalize content at scale to your customers. And, you know, you don't, you don't need to, to know who your customers are. So we were very much uh, swimming against the, the stream. But I do think we had the basics of, of marketing fundamentals correct. And, and maybe, just maybe, the rules of marketing gravity were spun on their head unnaturally. And the whole privacy debate is, uh, is bringing back the fundamentals of, uh, of marketing rules and gravity again. Well, I love that. That's a great distillation because that's, you totally nailed it. That it was like, you know, this, this amazing superpower that every marketer had 
of like, hey, we can figure out exactly who, what these people look like and all this stuff uh, and, and how to market best to them. We can use this crazy platform that's, you know, in some ways even better than Google and all that sort of thing. And then you're exactly right that, I mean, you kind of had the first wave of pushback when it's like, whether it's pages or followers or things like that, you're like, wait, we have to, we just spent all this money building this page and now we got to spend more money to target those folks. But we just, you know, built this, this audience, you know, we kind of felt like that was going to be like an email list and then it wasn't. How is that transformation not only just going for you all, but what do you see in the market in terms of like, you know, moving back towards, uh, you know, away from kind of, hey, someone else has all the all the data, all the information, and now we got to own that in-house again? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because it, originally it wasn't always the case with with Facebook. And funny enough, when, when, we, when we set up Engage Sciences, you know, we, we were doing our own thing, creating these experiences that were helping brands build their marketing database and, and learn about their consumers. And actually, in the early days, so we're talking, you know, over a decade ago now, Facebook actually came and pitched us to join their partner program, um, which is really, really interesting. And we, we did. We were partners for a couple of uh, years. But that was a, a time when Facebook really hadn't sort of ratcheted up its um, incarnation as essentially a display ad network with lots and lots of rich data. And they were trying to forge this sort of more, pa- this new paradigm between brands and consumers. And they were actually, you know, pretty um, uh, negative towards the traditional advertising world when you would go and see Facebook. They, did, they thought that was kind of a, a push model out to consumers. And actually, the, the future was in more of an interactive medium between brand and consumer. And that's what they were trying to pioneer. And they were trying to look for partners that would help them pioneer that sort of new way for uh, brands and consumers to connect, which you know, it was, it was pretty laudable. Unfortunately, like many things in life, the money men take over and um, they suddenly realized that actually creating this, you know, new paradigm was going to be very, very hard. And it was going to take the partners some time to, uh, to really integrate to the social graph properly and do the sorts of things that they were w- wanting to achieve. And actually, they flipped almost, you know, 180 degrees on its head and, and said, you know, no, forget that. We're just going to be a traditional kind of advertising network in many ways, a push model, but using all this rich social graph data that we have and augmented with a coterie of different third-party data providers that they hungrily signed up uh, as partners, opening up the social graph to uh, partners and, and, uh, and advertisers alike. In doing so, they also moved away from the partners like ourselves that were trying to do this more interactive experience because the one thing they didn't want was organic reach on the platform. I and mean, anyone in marketing has seen that algorithm that was once really great for you know, posting to your followers on social media, but be you know, basically useless now, how many followers you've, uh, you've got. And it became a pay-to-play model. With that, you know, the world, I think, changed in terms of how their influence, you know, Facebook's influence on marketers, and, and actually, I would argue, took it in a fairly backward step, you know, because it was a superpower, but it was a, it was a superpower based on an era of extremely fast and loose data controls that was, was actively encouraged by Facebook. Uh, and so when Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, um, I remember it crystal clear, you know, I'd been building this company and we'd, we'd got to sort of circa 10 million in revenues, but it was over a 10-year period. So it'd been, you know, be a hard slog. And, and I thought for the, the last sort of seven years of that, we'd really been battling against this, the, the stream and against everything that Facebook was saying. And Cambridge Analytica burst. And I remember immediately I jumped on, sent an email to the whole company saying, you might not realize it now, but this is the moment marketing changes because everything that we've been doing is suddenly become much more important because as marketers, they're going to see this gradual kind of attack on privacy, which is 100% being borne out. I mean, it's literally every, every week you open the newspaper or go online and there's some other new uh, front in terms of the, the battle with privacy. It's even become such a, a big stomping ground in terms of the battle between the major tech players because Apple has obviously thrown its weight behind kind of privacy and is using that as a way to, to ding Facebook and Google. Uh, same with Microsoft. Uh, and so you're seeing it sort of play out in big tech 
and the battle for control of, of big tech. So we, we've sort of seen that. And, and what's, what's been the impact of Facebook and, and Google? Well, Facebook and Google, who are the, the two folks that really pioneered this era of, of fast and loose data controls, were at the most exposed. And so they've had to start taking, you know, making changes to protect their business against uh, privacy legislation, as well as consumer attitudes, which have been shifting around uh, privacy. Um, and, I, and I find that whole kind of confluence between the legislation and the consumer expectations around privacy and then this battle for, uh, around big tech really, really interesting because it's going to define how marketers need to sort of act over the coming uh, years. I mean, you, you can't, you know, all the third-party data providers have, you know, shut up shop in many jurisdictions and are having to, to move out. Facebook and Google have shut down the, the relationships, the data spying relationships that they had with many of these companies. They've also shut down relationships in terms of data sharing that they had with companies like Adobe and Oracle. So, you know, it, it is fundamentally changing what marketers can do. And, and you know, funny enough, Seth Godin is someone that I, I admire greatly. And, you know, he came up with permission marketing 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And actually, that's what marketers right. having to return to. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Uh, I mean, it is funny, though, right? And well, and back then, 20 years ago, the email list was like this new, amazing channel that it's like, you know, 80% of people are reading it and, you know, clicking on stuff and all of this. And, you know, email marketing explodes. And then you kind of see the death of email marketing, you know, kind of posted everywhere. And then it turns out like, oh, that's not actually true at all because all of your email subscribers are still at least, are still at least yours and, uh, and all the other stuff isn't. Wait, do you know what social could have been the death of email if Facebook sure. had carried on with its same path of really encouraging organic reach? But as soon as they turn all that off, you know, what, why would anyone ever trust their database to, to Facebook again? because you know, they'll take your data and, you know, two years later, they'll charge you for it. So I think that game is, you know, that ship has sailed now. Well, and I think that ultimately it's going to evolve and to continue to evolve. And it's just going to be a different type of channel than it used to be, right? Like that's part of the thing with these social channels and networks is like, you know, there's people who swear by Twitter marketing. There's people that can't stand it. There's people who like absolutely love LinkedIn. There's other people who, you know, say it doesn't work for them. And there's a lot of B2B companies that, you know, barely use Facebook at all anymore or, or, or whatever it is. But I think that, you know, to be a, a clear intent driven platform like Google is, is still so much different especially for like B2B companies than something like Facebook, where it's just, you know, if you don't, if you don't own access to that data, if you don't really understand, you know, who your customers are and you don't have a, you know, cohesive understanding of that journey, then it's, it's just not going to be that helpful. And the whole idea of like a customer journey or something like search, if you're typing in to the search bar, like, you know, blank alternatives or, or blank pricing, it's like that's the high intense signal that you're looking for and you understand where they are in that moment of the customer journey. How do you think that customer journeys are shaped by this new normal of, of changing data and, and owning your own uh, data and that back to permission marketing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think uh, fundamentally it impacts the very start of the consumer journey or often the very start of the consumer journey. Now, if you take someone like Stitch Fix, right, we've seen a real growth in direct-to-consumer brands over the last few years. And one of the characteristics of these direct-to-consumer brands is the very first kind of interaction you have with them. So, you know, if you've got a Stitch Fix, for example, and you, you go onto their website, before you kind of do anything, they, like, ask you a whole bunch of questions, like, choose from these styles, which ones that you uh, find the most uh, appealing. What colors do you, do you like? How do you wear your clothes? Loose fitting, tight fitting, et cetera, et cetera. And so you go through this whole kind of set of profiling questions before they actually recommend, you know, what subscription so, uh, product you should have, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what they've done there is they've turned that very first point of the consumer journey into a profiling exercise where they are asking you to explicitly tell them about your likes, your motivations, your desires, you know, what appeals to you. And then the rest of the customer journey is sort of driven 
of that initial set of questions. And so, you know, we, 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 we have to think about that as marketers. What does actually, what does it mean now in a world where you can't just snoop on people right? or, or buy their data from dodgy third party companies? You, you have to actually learn about consumers in the methods and means which are acceptable in an age where privacy concerns are massively important to consumers as well as to legislators. That massively impacts the way that marketers actually think. And, you know, let me, let me also put this into context in terms of, because I think sometimes the privacy debate has been wrongly characterized as in, oh, well, this is a thing you've got to do for GDPR and CCPA and legislation, right? So yeah, turn off all our third-party data providers, you know, clean up our act in terms of, you know, only keeping the data that we, we can show the provenance that we collected the data uh, fairly and you know, people's expectations are being uh, met with how you use the data. Well, that, I don't think that's actually true. I think legislation is a part of it, of course, but actually I think consumer attitudes to privacy uh, should be much, much more fundamentally important to marketers. So I'll give you kind of some data around this. We did a, a bit of research with um, e-consultancy in March that we released. And it was a, a, a five or six, six market uh, country piece of research, uh, 5,000 uh, respondents. And we asked them a series of questions around attitudes to privacy, to shopper behavior, to uh, um, uh, data, et cetera. What we found was that 39% of US consumers don't like personalized ads at all (laughs) because they believe that it's driven from data that they haven't willingly shared with marketers, right? And in some markets like Australia and others, it was north of that. It was like 44% of consumers are turned off by personalized ads from brands, which is a really, really you know, shocking statistic in many ways, because the narrative that is sort of driving much of of the ad tech world is that more personalized, the better. Well, there is this reaction against that from consumers whereby, which I, I totally understand, which is maybe I don't mind getting personalized ads from company X or brand X because I have a direct relationship with them. I bought loads of stuff with them. They know about me. You know, I've, I've shared my inf- uh, information to them explicitly, like, like on Stitch Fix, for example, on the website. You understand why you're getting personalized ads and you know the data you gave them. When you're getting highly personalized ads from brands that you don't really have much of a relationship, if any at all, it's an invasion of privacy. And I don't think marketers have caught up to that fact yet. I'm pretty shocked to hear that. That's pretty crazy. I mean, I would have assumed that it was much lower and that the consumer feels a little differently about that. So I'm pretty I'm pretty shocked by those numbers. I, I got to say, especially with the personalization, because so much anecdotally, I feel like what happened, well, you have two anecdotes. You have one, the one is you hear all the time, which is they're listening. You see, you get the ad on your phone that says that's the wedding dress and you're like, I was just talking about getting married, right? So like my phone must be listening to me, right? You have that piece. And then the other side is, man, my feed really knows who I am because, you know, I just went, uh, you know, I just went wedding dress shopping and now every single ad is for wedding dresses, right? And I think that those two things are kind of like, one is really bad, uh, you know, anecdotally. And the other one is like kind of good because it saves you some time. So I don't know. I, that's that's fascinating that that you have that and that people feel that strongly about it. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's interesting. I, I was um, uh, talking to uh, uh, Fatima Kateblu, who is a forester analyst, which has really pioneered all their research uh, into privacy. Uh, she, she came up with the term zero party data, which is, is, is data that's willingly offered up to brands directly from consumers in return for a value exchange in order to get personalized services, ads, messages, et cetera. And and the research that we also did showed that consumers have no problem sharing data directly to a brand in return for personalized messages, uh, products and services, providing there's some sort of value exchange, what's in it for for them. And so I don't think there is any issue with consumers saying, no, great, if I tell you something, you can use that for personalization. The bit that they don't like is 
the snooping on, on me, the listening to me, the, the using my data when I haven't actually given you permission. That's the bit that comes through loud and clear. And actually, Forrester was saying they just did a consumer survey, a really big consumer survey. I don't think they've released it yet, so I, I won't go into details. But again, where they were like, look, privacy came back as the number one thing that consumers care about. Um, and I, I really don't think marketers have necessarily kind of understood that because well, what worries me is as we come out of this COVID-19, this recessionary period, marketers that are going to do this sort of knee-jerk jump to go, oh, wow, we've got to get things going again. Let's jump, you know, full into personalized ads on Facebook. You've got to be careful because in some markets, that's one in two people that are going to be turned off by that activity. So there's a lot here to unpack, I think, for how marketers need to address um, accelerating out, accelerating out of uh, uh, the COVID-19 recession. Well, I'll give you an example that I find extremely troubling, and it's lazy marketing. And I was talking to a marketer that was saying, basically, they're were, they were trying to decide between one or two options, what I'll call the hard road and the easier road. <laughs> and the easy road was like, well, I'll just buy a list, and then we'll email them, and then whatever, 1% will respond, and then blah, 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 and we'll fill our pipeline that way. And, and then the other way is like, you know, build a list essentially through X, Y, and Z. And I was like, I can't even believe that that is the mindset that you have, that those two things would even be a decision point because one of them is so, is so silly to me that it's like, do you want people like calling your cell phone that you don't know um, out of nowhere? No. So like, why don't you just create something worth subscribing to? But it's like, that's the harder version, right? Yeah, it, it is the, the harder version. But, um, you know, going back to Seth Godin, you know, um, this is all part and parcel of, of what we have to do as marketers. And, you know, I think he he pioneered that. There was a, a, another author, I've forgotten his name now, that, that pioneers the, that wrote the book on database marketing, which, which these for me are the rules of gravity of, of how marketing needs to, uh, marketers need to, to, to operate in normal times. And, and everything that we're seeing with privacy now is getting us back to those, those normal times. But don't forget, you know, 70% of US consumers don't trust social media platforms with their data because of privacy issues. 37% of consumers regularly delete cookies and 30% of installed an ad block, uh, blocker. So there is, there is a full frontal attack from consumer attitudes on privacy that many marketers could find themselves you know, in a, a creek without a paddle. <laughs> because if you've kind of abrogated that responsibility to build the list, you know, to get to know who your own consumers are, everything that's happening in privacy is making it harder for you to, to, to take the lazy marketing uh, option. So, you know, there really, really isn't any time to waste. I mean, Google put time on the third-party tracking cookie, you know, give it, give it, gave it the two years till it was deplicated. Well, that's, um, you know, year, well, at least six months, maybe more since they did that. So you're 18 months out. Apple, with its iOS uh, 14 changes, essentially with the IDFA, probably did a bigger thing than what Google did in terms of the, the cookies because it's making it incredibly hard now to, to, to track consumers and to, to understand their behavior. So, you know, that whole kind of framework of, of being able to buy data or snoop on consumers is, is much, much harder. And it should be hard because, you know, I, I, I quite often use this uh, anecdote, which is, you know, let's strip it back to the most basic sort of principles. If a new, uh, you know, couple or a new family or whatever move into your, into your street, you know, you want to you want to be a great neighbor. You want to get to know them. You, what you don't do is go. Ah, let's let's drop a tracking bug under their car, and you know, spy cameras through their windows so we can get to know them before we go round and uh, you know say hello, because so we can be better at, at doing it. You don't. What you do, you, you knock on the door, you take around a, a bottle of wine, and and you ask them about themselves. And that's common decency. And I think marketers in the digital world lost those principles of common decency and society is now forcing them <laughs> to get back to those those common principles. So what are some best practices? What are the things that you're seeing of how you can do that, how you can drive that permission marketing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So for me, it all comes down to the value exchange and, and you know, one could, could call it value exchange marketing because in, in the absence of being able to just go to Facebook and their coterie of third-party data providers and do your hyper-personalized content at scale, you actually have to build out that data yourself. 
And there are some common, there's some simple things that you can actually do to make that whole world easier for yourself. And, you know, this is something that, you know, I know intimately because we've been doing it for 10 years and we have collected on behalf of brands, several billion marketing opt-ins and data records for consumers. Now, each data record could have a hundred different fields that some, uh, somebody over time as a consumer has told one of our brand customers. So, you know, and I, we, we do have some customers that are collecting hundreds of millions of net new names into their database every single year. But you can only do that by thinking about what's in it for the consumer. What's the value exchange? How are you going to tempt them to actually give you their opt-ins, tell you about themselves? And then how can you augment that data with other signals that you might have, other first-party data from across all of your channels? And you need to make sure that you bring all that data into one place and you can understand it. And not every business has kind of got that licked yet. You know, so there's lots of opportunity there. So... And in terms of the value exchange, you know, it's simple things like uh, I'll give you an example of, uh, of a campaign. So um, Shell Retail is one of the uh, companies we work with. It's actually the biggest retailer in the world in terms of the number of outlets they have with all of their gas stations and stuff, which are mini shops all around the, around the world. And so they sort of saw this shift coming. They wanted to start to understand their consumers. They wanted to learn about their consumers to offer better services. There's lots of transformation that's going on in their uh, industry, as, as, as you're well aware. So they actually started to do simple things like when you come into a gas station, they uh, run uh, instant wins. And so, you know, there's a little you know, QR code or sometimes they uh, print out on little cards. Um, it, many different ways they do it in the different markets they operate in. But essentially whereby if you, know, if you spend more than, and they did it in the UK, you know, I've actually got the stats for that. They, they basically said, um, if you spend more than 30 pounds on the V power fuel, which is the sort of the, the fancy fuel, you get access to an instant win and you can win a reward for something there in the shop, you know, free coffee or whatever it may be. They ran actually that uh, campaign with an instant win. You know, everyone's got a smartphone in the pocket, so it's super easy to do that and collect the data, asked a few questions of consumers as they were doing this instant win uh, in the, in the uh, shops. They actually collected in that campaign, which went for a, a six weeks in the UK, they collected 300,000 um, net new names into the database, and they actually made about $6.9 million of additional revenue because of the incentives to spend that, that cap of, of 30 pounds. So, you know, there are many different ways that you can do it, but you do have to think what's, the, what's in it for the consumer. And it doesn't have to be, you know, an instant win or a prize or anything like that. It can be social kudos. It can be access to uh, a personalized recommendation or personalized uh, content. A lot of people collect data with their loyalty programs because it's very easy to reward people, you know, with points or whatever for uh, interacting with the brand and giving them data, not just, you know, making points for purchases. So there's many different ways to actually do it, but you've got to be thinking the ABCD, you know, always be collecting data and to do that across all of your online and offline channels. And I'll, I'll, if, you, if, you, if you'll let me, I'll just go back to the Seth Coden story because um, my chairman at Cheetah Digital is a guy called Peter McCormick. And I don't know whether you know him, but Peter McCormick was one of the three founders of Exact Target, which became Salesforce, uh, uh, well, became the heart of Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And when they set up Exact Target, it was really uh, designed for kind of uh, small or medium uh, businesses. And the number one thing that they were doing uh, back then, 20 years ago or so, was, was teaching people, small businesses, how to build their lists. Because that's fundamental to kind of database marketing, permission marketing, everything that Seth Godin and others uh, talk about. And, you know, back then it was things like, yeah, make sure you have a goldfish bowl on your counter and get people to drop their business cards in when they visit your shop. You know, it was all those types of tactics. But obviously now in the digital space, you can actually run interactive experiences that collect data on all these channels. And if you're committed to it, you can do it at scale. You know, we've got many customers that are starting to go, do you know what? I'm not going to put money into advertising that's just for a vanity metric, like impressions. I'll only put money into a media partner if they allow me to actually collect data from their audience. And I think you're going to see more of that happening in the coming uh, months and years. For sure. I totally agree. And I think that those companies are are wise to invest in experiences. And we talk about on the show all the time, the marketing is meant 
to be remarkable, right? That means you have to actually tell someone about it, right? You actually right. have to 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 feel uh, something or it solves something or, you know, it's memorable for many years to come. And there's just, you know, a lot of stuff out there that is very unmemorable. It's very vanilla. It's very it's very bland. How complex are these uh, are these experiences that that you're seeing folks use your platform for? So, I mean, there's a wide range, uh, as as one can imagine, but they they really do stem from the super super simple to actually you know the the, the very sophisticated, and the super simple are things like you know surveys and quizzes and coupons and instant wins and all that type of stuff. The more sophisticated things are kind of challenges and stuff that are are embedded into a kind of more fully fledged more sophisticated customer loyalty program and i and i i do i do think loyalty has a massive part to play in this disruption in ad tech that's being driven from privacy uh, concerns because you know if you go and speak to anyone that's been in loyalty for for a long period of time quite often people will kind of from the outside might mischaracterize um, customer loyalty programs as a as a way of like squeezing out more purchases from people. Oh, you know, <laughs> purchase this amount of things and then you'll get access to something, whatever it may be, you know, points for, for purchases. Well, actually, loyalty has pretty much always been about data <laughs> from, from, from day one, when you really get into the nuts and bolts with the practitioners. It's people that, you know, they, they, they use the loyalty programs to establish the direct connection with consumers. And actually, loyalty programs allow them to learn huge amounts of information and data around their consumers, which actually powers a whole set of other downstream kind of marketing activities. And the reason why I like loyalty in this particular current uh, economic environment is that we, we are in a deep, deep recession. Uh, we know that in any recession in the past, you see a massive increase in the amount of promotions, uh, offers, coupons. We, in our own research with eConsultancy, found that nine times as many consumers want to participate in more loyalty programs in 2020 than those that want to actually reduce their involvement. And I think a lot of that is correlated to people searching for value uh, in a recessionary environment. So. I think marketers have this opportunity to sort of see what's going on with privacy, see that the writing is on the wall and that they have to build out their own list. They have to start building out their own consumer data uh, bases and actually also to use it as a tactic which we, is known to work in recessionary environments. So you know, I think any marketer know that worth its salt right now will be looking at those uh, twin things that are going on in the market and actually go, do you know what? I'm going to combine the two. I'm going to double down, building out my database, double down on my loyalty program, double down on my direct-to-consumer relationship, which also isolates me from any kind of vagary or changes in the privacy debate and the disruption in ad tech, which is literally ongoing and who knows what's going to be next. Obviously, you know, talking a bunch about data, what about those campaigns and things that are out of home, TV spend, those types of you know, advertising that are much more difficult to track? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. But I would say if I look at what I've been doing for the last 10 years and, and look at you know, where have we been getting huge volumes of data collection across our customer community and, and what are the channels that they actually promote those experiences that collect their data? <laughs> Interestingly, the company, uh, I hope they won't mind, won't mind me saying this, but the company that actually has collected inordinately more data than anyone we've ever worked with by a factor of 10x is actually Discovery Communications. And Discovery collect, they have collected literally billions of opt-ins. You know, we work with them any longer, they'll have collected the entire world into a database. You know, it's, it's, it's that impressive. And they actually use TV, along with their digital channels, as one of the, the, the main ways to actually collect data. Now, what they do is they'll work with brand partners, um, uh, sponsors, etc., to create an experience. They will then promote it via their TV channels, the hosts, as well as on their digital channels, and they will get hundreds of millions of people to enter an experience and not only give their opt-ins, but actually answer, you know, 25 questions as part of that experience. Now, those 
not, we're not talking about sort of boring questions. These things can be interactive experiences and people don't even know they're being asked questions, that, but they're showing their preferences by what they're clicking on, what they're choosing, how they're engaging with the actual experience. And so I think, you know, I don't think there's really any channel that can't be used to drive data collection. It might not be embedded into the, you know, into that channel as well. You might be promoting a destination for people to go to, but we've seen that TV can be a phenomenal way to promote uh, digital experiences. Back to the Stitch Fix example, uh, I interviewed the CTO at Stitch Fix a while back, and she was talking about how, you know, if you use eight of the parameters versus 10 of the parameters, that they actually saw way less, you know, people opt or that were happy customers. Because essentially, you know, if you're getting your you know, body measured, or if you're measuring your own body, 10 data points is a lot more valuable than eight, and it's going to fit better, right? So they really push people to, to give that information. However, that is, you know, directly in uh, at odds with a seamless customer experience, right? To, a- to ask for more information up front. Nobody wants to fill out forms anymore. We don't want to, you know, provide more information generally speaking, we don't want to have the really long implementation process. So how do you, how are you seeing folks kind of figure out both sides of that where it's like, we know if you do these 10 things, it's going to create a better customer experience in the long run. But at the same time, we want to secure the sale up front. Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, this all comes down to what I call progressive profiling. And to do progressive profiling properly, you know, as a, as a, as a brand, you need to also have a customer data platform deployed because what you want to be able to do is have that kind of consistent record of of your audience, all the people you're connecting with across all your different channels. And you need to be able to continually progressively add to that consumer data record with questions that you're answering. So this is your zero party data, explicit information that you're capturing from different experiences over time, perhaps on different channels, which start to build out that data record of the the consumer. And so with progressive profiling, you might have, you know, 50 things you want to ask a consumer, but you're only going to ask two or three at a time uh, and gradually progressively build out that profile. But it's not just about zero-party data because consumers are also giving you lots of information when they're engaging with you on your different channels. So making sure that you are understanding and pulling all that data around that consumer from your POS systems, your databases, you know, your online uh, visitors, et cetera, et cetera, or how people are engaging with your branded mobile app, et cetera, whatever, whatever, opening your emails, whatever it may be. There's many different channels and ways that consumers will inter- interact with you. So making sure you're capturing that information, you're storing it uh, against that consumer record and augmenting it with that zero party data, the data that you're explicitly asking folks over time to do that progressive profiling that as a strategy is what marketers have to be doing now. And if they're not, I'm afraid they're on the wrong side of history because of what's going on with privacy. Yeah. So what is the next um, piece with privacy? What is the result of, of the death of cookies? What is, you know, what, how do marketers stay ahead right now? Yeah. So a, a great question. And, and I think there's, there's basically a number of things that they should start to think about doing in terms of a kind of a strategy. And I'll, I'll quickly sort of step you through it. So the first thing, obviously, as we talked about here, is grow your database, right? Concentrate on building out your opt-ins, the folks that you can have that direct relationship with, and start to build those consumer profiles with the collection of zero-party data. We talk about it a lot. We have lots of campaign books with all the different experiences that folks can actually run as marketers. So come on to the, the Cheetah Digital blog. You'll get a, more stuff than you can ever read on how to go and collect data from consumers and build your marketing database. The second piece is is when you're actually learning about people, make sure that you're asking not just information about them, but also psychographic uh, information. Because the psychographic information, you know, our customers have shown can actually get you a 500% lift on the effectiveness of your advertising uh, data. So, you know, think psychographics, think intent information, as well as the, you know, the basics, name, address, email, demographics, all that type of stuff. So that's how you kind of focus on the unknown consumer and turn them into a known consumer in your database. You then have to unify your data sets. So that's that, this piece about bringing in POS, ERP, and other first-party data into a single unified platform 
for real, real, you know, real time insights and activation. Okay. The sort of third bit of this is then you need to look at the segmentation and, um, uh, and analytics that you run off that data set because you need to create custom journeys that are actually going to get you closer to your, your customers, right? So getting that all into the, the uh, a customer data platform, looking at opportunities to be able to personalize product services, messages, offers to your consumers off that data is what happens next. And if you kind of do that, hopefully you're delivering content and offers via email, SMS, mobile, wallet, etc., at scale off the back of all of that analytics and machine learning that's powering your customer data platform. So that allows you then to really activate your first and zero party data to deliver those put that personalized messaging and that journey orchestration to customers at scale. And then the last bit of this strategy that I think people need to really concentrate on is we also want to make sure that we're turning, you know, that unknown consumer into a known consumer into a retained customer into a loyalty member because you know, I'll come back to it. this is the number one framework for any business to be able to establish that value exchange mechanism to get closer to consumers over time and to learn about them in a truly deep way. And so setting up a loyalty program that is not about just points for purchase, it's about engaging and rewarding and incentivizing customers to actually interact with you, to give you their data, to share your content on social channels, to do feedback into your product development, et cetera, to, to become that uh, loyal advocate is extremely important when you look at the backdrop of actually everything that's going on with privacy and this massive disruption to, to ad tech. Does that change at all for, for B2B? Yeah, I'm talking all B2C, um, by the way. Uh, I should clarify, uh, clarify that. Um, B2B is, is somewhat different because it is, you know, the, the whole concept of mass advertising to consumers that you don't actually know or understand has, has never been a concept in, in B2B. What's, what's interesting, I should say, is that CDPs, people like Scott Brinker, are now talking about CDPs as the B2C CRM which is very interesting. Whereas I, I disagree with him slightly. I don't think the CDP is. I think, you know, you have to th think about a customer engagement suite that's a bit broader than just the CDP and loyalty and experiences for building out the database or the rest of it. They're all part of what I would call a sort of B2C uh, CRM. Um, but obviously that's, CRM has been a staple of B2B uh, marketing and sales, you know, for, for years and years and years. So in some ways, B2C is, is looking at, is sort of following B2B in this regard. Stepping back to, you know, your time, you've been a multi-time CEO, uh, you know, now you're, uh, you know, sitting in the CMO chair. Any changes to like how you view being a CMO with, with all of that CEO experience? Yes, there is definitely some, some things there that make me look at the world slightly differently, having been a CEO a couple of times before taking over the role of CMO. This is the first CMO job I've done, uh, funny enough. Um, and actually thinking beyond the department, I think is super, super important. You know, and, and, and this isn't just for marketing, it's for any, any industry. So you know, if, if I kind of would say, what's, what's my superpower, what's my advantage perhaps over folks that have just stayed in the lane of being a CMO, is I do look at the business end to end. And so, you know, I approach the problem of marketing by looking at marketing, not for the sake of how do I run my own marketing KPIs, but how does marketing actually influence the total performance of the business across every single facet? You know, for me, I, I had the choice of like, when I came to Choose Digital, where do I want to sort of go? Where am I going to land here? Um, I could have been in any department as a CEO. You get intimately familiar with, with every department that you, that you manage. So I chose marketing because I do believe that marketing is the fundamentally most important part of any business that you're in. If you don't get marketing right, you're, you know, excuse my French, you're screwed. And marketing impacts everything. It impacts the way that you manage your customers, the way that you build your products, the way that you're seen in the marketplace. It is the driver uh, of revenue. So it, there really isn't a department that isn't intimately connected to the relative success of what happens in, in marketing. Um, you know, when I got into the, to the job, the first thing that I did was go, well, hang on, guys, look, 
the sales department, you know, you could go and speak to the sales folks and different sales teams were presenting the company in different ways. So I went and actually rebuilt all of their sales decks. That was the first job, you know, versus necessarily getting stuck into the marketing campaigns that I was creating. So definitely thinking that end-to-end view of the company and what the company is trying to achieve and getting yourself out of the minutiae of the KPIs of your department, I think is, is, is probably my superpower uh, being a CMO. Yeah, I love that. It's so important. I mean, it's, you have to be lockstep uh, with sales or with the CEO or, you know, with however your company, you know, makes money, you know, at the, at the end level, at the end user, at the end customer, because, you know, if you're not understanding, you know, specifically, not just the market and the motion, but the, you know, how the buyer is thinking, uh, it's, it's just too, too hard to, uh, to think that you're going to be able to create, you know, complex marketing campaigns or, or manage teams that make those campaigns. Yeah. The, the other thing that, um, that I like about the, about the CEO experience getting into the CMO role is um, there was no, you know, I, I wasn't, so, I didn't feel like I was just rolling out a formula, right, for the job, which quite, quite often is the case when you're sort of career professional in one area, you sort of, you get a blueprint and you sort of tend to follow that blueprint where there was no blueprint for me. You know, if anyone follows Cheetah Digital, you know, we went from a company that really didn't have any kind of digital content. It really wasn't any inbound strategy. It was all outbound to just an explosion in inbound marketing success. And we did that by thinking about content very, very differently, perhaps than is traditionally the way uh, for B2B marketing. You know, quite often content in B2B marketing is quite stale. Uh, you know, people don't like to put their head across the, across the parapet. It's very focused on sort of practitioner stuff. They don't, there's no really no real voice like there is in B2C. You know, no one's, you know, being um, Nike and, uh, you know, their stands with, with uh, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, you know, you don't get that stuff in B2B. It tends to be sort of a very risk-averse world in terms of content. And I broke all that very, very easily, very, very quickly, because, you know, why does B2B marketing have to be boring? It shouldn't be. And so, you know, my first hire for VP of content was a guy that actually was a a roadie for Motley Crue, who had then gone and was a producer for Jackass, (laughs) who'd then gone and built an agency doing, you know, that's how I met him, doing all the partnership stuff with us in terms of building out people's databases for uh, famous music bands and, you know, niche brands and stuff. And actually got him in and, and the kind of stuff we're producing is not the norm for b2b marketing at all you know we're creating mini shows we're bringing humor into b2b marketing you know we're, we're not afraid to take on some big issues of the day and maybe offend you know people like facebook we're happy to do it and i've really enjoyed doing that and the stuff we're getting back from the customers around is they're loving it so i think that's that's also not being stuck by a blueprint or having held to a blueprint or the, a belief on how marketing b2b marketing should work is also something that i think has has worked well for me okay let's get into our lightning round questions these questions are fast and easy just like marketing with salesforce you can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more we love salesforce and they've been with us since the very first episode 200 plus episodes ago uh, of this show uh, hundreds of thousands of downloads ago we love salesforce check them out salesforce.com slash marketing Lightning round questions. Richard, are you ready? Go for it. Number one, do you have a hobby or habit that you picked up during shelter in place? The habit that I've picked up, the hobby that I've picked up most recently, which ended up in a, uh, a, a an injury I'm still dealing with, is a one wheel. Have you ever seen those things? Oh my God, there's some. Oh yeah. Roll the ankle or something? Yeah, I wiped out big time. And uh, it was my ankle. Yeah, I'm still still dealing with it. How about a, uh, a podcast or a book or TV show you've been binging recently? Uh, well, this is a terrible. terrible um, I, I shouldn't really do it, but I've actually really enjoyed it. So we actually run three podcasts at Cheetah. Uh, and one of those podcasts is called Uncaged Wisdom, which is uh, a colleague of mine that I've worked with for many years who does a practitioner podcast for, you know, stories from the trenches for folks in uh, in BBC marketing. And it's, it's really, really good. He does it very, very well. Got a, got a talent there. If you weren't a marketer, what do you think you'd be doing? Yeah, I would love to have been a professional footballer. I just, I just didn't have the fitness or the talent. What's your best advice for a first-time CMO? My advice uh, would be unify all of the departments that have a stake in marketing, which is basically everyone, 
with the same view into the same accurate data. Uh, for me, it was rolling out whole new funnel metrics process, cleaning up Salesforce, etc. Salesforce as our CRM system uh, to make sure that everyone had this was looking at the same view into the same data. Because if you do that, you can start to unify uh, behaviors. What question you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Why do you look like Brad Pitt? <laughs> Why do you? You know. <laughs> Richard, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, love the conversation and uh, excited to follow along to the digital and, and see all the cool stuff you're coming up with. Excellent. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Take care. No worries. Cheers. Bye. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.